It's always rather lovely to uh, just take a moment to sit and look and see everyone. And you sitting here. It's really something quite special, quite beautiful that takes place in a situation like this. When I come to give a talk in the evening on a retreat like this, I generally like to take a couple of moments just to express my appreciation and gratitude, uh, first of all, to the Buddha, this uh, human being, as he was, who lived a long time ago, it seems, but whose commitment to exploring his life and sharing what he learned in his life has had a profound and beneficial impact and influence on certainly my life and on the world. And uh, just taking a moment to say thank you, to express a sense of appreciation and gratitude, to honour something remarkable, in fact, in human life and the both the potential of human awakening that the Buddha represents, but also the actualization, the fulfilment of that potential that he equally represents and embodies. And uh, likewise, at the various points in the day, I like to bring my hands together and take a moment to bow to all of you, often at the end of a sitting and knowing what that involves to be sitting here for 30, 40 minutes or more at times. Just my sense of appreciation and respect, but also gratitude for the fact that you're doing this is something I like to touch into, connect with. And in saying that, for some of you, it might seem like some sort of strange or archaic or weird behavior. And it's fine, whatever it appears to you. You're not required to engage in it. Um, though for me, it was something really lovely to discover that sense of, and it took time, my own practice, to discover a sense of really just wanting to acknowledge and to honour that which gives me a sense of uplift and brings a sense of appreciation. And particularly because, you know, as we've said in different ways and as you have observed also in different ways, what we're doing here is really quite challenging, quite difficult. Interestingly, the Buddha, as one of the um, principles he had for the monks and the nuns of his order, he, he said to them, when you give Dharma teachings, when you talk about these teachings and practices, you shouldn't give talks or teachings if people are lying down, unless they're injured or sick. Something about an invitation to sit up and engage with what's being taught, with what's being offered. And of course, uh, I'm not an ordained monastic, so I'm not constrained by that particular rule. But nonetheless, if one isn't ill or injured, I think it's actually helpful to be sitting up. And if you need support, leaning against a wall is fine. Having some support in, a, in order to be able to relax, it's something we can all appreciate. And if we absolutely need to be lying down, then if that's what our health or condition requires, then of course that's fine too. And so this encounter with our experience, it often, that we're engaged in here, it often reminds me, I find myself sort of remembering a particular cartoon that some of you may be familiar with, the, uh, the cartoons Calvin and Hobbes. I think the, uh, the author 
writer, drawer, I'm not sure how you describe the cartoonist I think is from North America, perhaps Canadian, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, it involves, if you don't know, the world of the mind of a six-year-old boy, Calvin, and his pet, in fact, stuffed tiger, but for him, pet and very alive tiger, Hobbes. And they get into various adventures and things, but it all takes place inside his mind, generally. And you get to see occasionally a a flash from his mind to what's going on in the apparent objective world that his parents are experiencing or observing. So it's very uh, lovely. But there's one particular cartoon in which uh, Calvin and his friend Hobbes are sitting watching television. The eyes are wide open, looking at the television. And there's a voice coming from the side that says, Calvin, it's his mum, Calvin, Go and play outside. You've been watching television for long enough. Next caption. Calvin's still sitting there. Hobbes likewise, both staring at the television. Calvin, I already told you, go outside and play. It's the caption from the side. The next caption, you see Calvin and Hobbes. This time Hobbes is actually uh, back in his sort of stuffed animal mode, being thrown out through the front door into the garden. They're sort of flying through the air. And as they fly through the air, in the last caption, Calvin turns round and he calls back towards his mother, who you've never seen in this whole stream. He says, it's too real. I always find it quite both amusing, but also touching. How for us it's not easy to encounter what's real. We might wish for it, long for it in certain ways, and yet... The effect, the challenge, at times the impact of getting real with our life, with ourselves, with our experience, with this body, this heart, this mind, and we've talked about that in lots of ways. Sometimes we find ourselves wanting to pull away from that. And Kirsten spoke last night and uh, explored in some detail some of the ways in which we experience patterns that lead to that withdrawal. And really important that we're aware of these patterns and there's a larger kind of reflection that's also that goes with why this happens, how this plays out, that always seems very important to me, the, the sense that, yes, it is challenging, it is intense, or it is at times too real, or so real I'm not sure if I quite fully really want it. And with that, to understand that we're incredibly sensitive as human beings. And it's hard to find ease, it's hard to find comfort, it's hard to find a condition in which we're not being impacted in ways that are hard for us to handle or challenging for us to open to. And the urge we can have is to withdraw, to pull away, to shrink away from such experience, from such situations. And even as someone was speaking in the group today, something that's unfamiliar to us that we don't know, maybe a practice like walking meditation, we might notice that just because we don't really know it, we kind of pull back from engaging. We hold ourselves back easily from our life, in fact. And there's this way in which we, we kind of hesitate or we're cautious or we're unsure, perhaps, or maybe we're quite sure that we don't want to be experiencing, to be meeting, to being touched by our life. 
And yet practice, and with that, practice sometimes can be seen as, oh, can I just make everything comfortable? Can I just get away from all the uncomfortable things? And if, if it doesn't seem to be producing that effect, then I kind of might say, it's not working. It's still uncomfortable. It's not working. And, or, you know, I didn't have a very good meditation. What does that mean? It usually means something uncomfortable was happening. I had a really good meditation. It usually means something quite comfortable was happening. Now, we might associate that quiet or calm experience we can sometimes find ourselves entering into as good meditation. But if it was painful and uncomfortable to be quiet and calm, we wouldn't probably call it good meditation, would we? We'd say, oh, no, I don't like that. And of course, for some people, it's not easy to experience what happens as the mind becomes quiet. It can be scary, in fact. And we might pull away from that too. So this process of withdrawing or pulling away that we notice, that we can recognize that has very deep biological roots and it, it's something um, very strongly conditioned into our kind of, our kind of survival mechanisms at a, at a biological, at a physiological level. And it, it has a place. But the effect of it is that we harden, that we tighten, that we contract, and that we kind of start to experience ourselves as needing and having to kind of armor ourselves in life, to defend ourselves against life. As someone, again, was speaking in one of the groups, seeing how it's not easy to put our weapons down and be open, be vulnerable. And it's interesting. We, we might recognize that. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, wow, I'm going about my life as a battle, carrying armor and you know, wearing armor, carrying weapons. It's like, wow. That's actually not particularly how I imagine we'd really want to be living our life if we had a choice. And we might get some sense of protection or safety or security from that orientation. And there may have been times and places in our lives, particularly when we were young, where we needed to withdraw or we needed in a way to harden up or hold ourselves in that protective way it just in order to handle and manage things that might otherwise have been more than we can handle might have been overwhelming or may have actually been overwhelming and we learnt to manage that condition by tightening by contracting by trying to establish or create something solid to refer to and yet in that very process there's a profound loss that we also experience a loss of sensitivity, a loss of connectedness, a loss of freedom to move and to change and to open to our life. And there can often be a very deep sadness and a frustration or even anger with the fact that now I find myself caught up in these patterns or these reactions that may have once served me but now seem to limit me. We deeply need to find our way back into contact with our life, with our heart. And by heart, in this case, I'm speaking about the, that element or aspect of our capacity to feel that's sensitive and responsive. And we could talk about heart or heart-mind because in the teachings of the Buddha they're not so absolutely set apart. They're very much influencing and 
affecting each other to a degree that we can't really treat them as absolutely separate. And so there's the sense of we need to come back into contact with the tenderness of our heart, also with its sensitivity. But that's not always easy for us. I had a very interesting experience quite some years ago now when I was uh, teaching a retreat in the um, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And um, IMS, as it's known to pretty much everyone involved with it, is a, a wonderful retreat centre, sister centre to Guy House. And I was, I was there in the summer teaching a retreat with some friends and at a certain point I had an opportunity to go for a walk in the woods, as there are quite some um, forested areas, down to the, to the pond. And as I was walking on this well-travelled track, I saw in front of me about um, two or three yards, two or three metres ahead, a snake. And it looked like a big snake. It, was like, like it seemed like quite a substantial body crossing the path. Yeah, and someone's eyes opening. My eyes were wide open. I come from New Zealand. We don't have snakes in New Zealand. It's like I was both excited and a little bit terrified, to be honest. It's like <gasps> I could feel my body. <gasps> and wow, a snake. It's a big one. Is that good news? For my excitement, it's good news. For the rest of me, it's not good news. Um, so I stopped. And then I noticed it wasn't moving, so I took a step closer. This might have been stupid, but it was what it was. And I took another step, and then I realized, it's not moving. And I got even closer, and I realized, oh my gosh. Now, you've probably all heard the stories in the Buddhist tradition and others about the dangers of confusing a snake with a rope. <clears throat> if you think the snake is a rope and you try and pick it up, it's going to bite you. Of course, if you confuse a rope with a snake and you get really scared by a piece of uh, rope on the ground, then you feel a bit silly. So I, all these stories were going through my head in this... And then I realized, oh, it's not a snake. It's a snake skin. And it was like, oh, okay, it was a snake, or it was around a snake. And immediately, again, this, this, this whole sort of reflection arose. Oh, my gosh, that snake had to get out of its skin. And I guess most of us, we would know that's not such you know, esoteric knowledge. Yes, snakes shed their skin. But if one thinks about it, as I did just there, in the state of both excitement and a little bit of anxiety initially, what happens? Why does it do that? Of course, we know, actually, don't we? A snake has this protective shell of scales and skin around it that helps protect it, but because it's tough and hard, it also can't grow inside its skin. It can't. And if it doesn't shed its skin, it will die. Because it will... It'll, it'll suffocate in itself in a certain way, not suffocate literally, but it needs to shed its skin. And of course I thought, as I was reflecting, well, having shed its skin, it can't come out of that skin with a whole new set of armoured skin on because that wouldn't be any bigger than the one it took off. In fact, it would be smaller. So it's got to come out kind of soft and maybe juicy. I don't know. And that's got to be scary for a snake because in that moment, you know, if an eagle comes past... It's in trouble, I should think. Now, I don't know exactly, but I think it's something like that. And so it's like, wow, look at that. Here's a creature that has to shed its protective armoring skin on a regular basis to survive. 
And wow, isn't that just kind of like what we need to do too? Aren't we perhaps able to recognise something similar in our own process? And what happens here on retreat, and this is something that happens really whether we want it to or not, as we pay attention to, as we feel into our experience, as we come back again and again to what's happening, we start the very armoring and the resistance to feeling and being touched by life starts to soften. It's like the attention we, we bring has the effect of sort of moisture in the hardness and the armoring of our, of our consciousness, of our heart. And by paying attention, by allowing ourselves to feel, by sensing into and coming back again and again, and we have to keep doing it because at some level we don't like it, so we keep disappearing, and we see that. But not judging it, just, oh, of course, we're just finding our way with this. And there's a, there's a contact with each experience, with each moment, whether it's sweet and lovely, enjoyable, whether it's just ordinary, not particularly exciting, whether it's something we find incredibly painful or tender or bitter or sharp to us, learning that we have the capacity, and it's a slow learning for us, but we learn that we have the capacity to meet these experiences. That maybe when we were young and we were first trying to find out how to handle life and function, we didn't because we were children and we probably didn't get a lot of help and guidance in what's useful either in meeting things. So there's this, this process of opening to, that involve opening to our life, allowing our tender heart, allowing our sensitivity to actually become available to be touched by life. And this is something important and precious to us. To be willing to feel, as we've talked about, those areas that might be uncomfortable in our experience, in our body. And as we spoke in one of the, the groups today, how when we work with those experiences in our body, we see actually this is also a way in which we learn how to work with experiences that are tender or painful at an emotional or psychological level for us. Oh, it's not so different. Again, we see how we pull away, we withdraw. And what would it be to actually bring a sense of care and kindness to these experiences? So many things that we feel we don't want, or we think we don't want, we believe we don't want, or we shouldn't have to experience. So many things we can encounter. And we can have this idea that, well, it shouldn't be like this, which, of course, makes little sense in the face of the fact that it is like this. At least some of the time, it is. So what, where does that shouldn't come from? What it means is actually, I don't want it to be like this. I don't like it that it's this way. I really wish it was different than this. None of which has any real significant impact on the fact that it's like this. Oh, okay, it's like this. We can struggle with the 
the physical discomfort sometimes. And it's easy to imagine it's simply because of our posture. And sometimes, yeah, posture puts pressure on the body. Particularly we're not used to it and we're learning and our body takes time to find its way to something new, for sure. But some of what we're experiencing isn't because we're sitting in an unfamiliar posture for a long period of time or lots of substantial chunks of time. Some of it's because this is just what it is to have a body. Now the Buddha said once, and it seems a little cryptic, he observed, the pain of the body is disguised by the postures. And what that means is, what I understand the meaning of this, is that the, the fact that our body experiences pain is concealed to a certain degree by the way we keep changing our posture. We keep moving. And if, as long as we can keep moving, as long as we don't mind having to keep moving, we never quite have to see, oh, this is what it's like. You know? We might say, well, these cushions are a bit hard or my knees aren't very flexible. That's why it hurts. Yeah, maybe. But if you sit in a comfortable chair and really don't move, how long does it take before your buttock starts to ache or your, something, your thigh's a little sore or something's just not, my shoulders start... You know, if you lie on the best quality mattress ever and don't move, it starts to hurt after a while. Only because we keep moving do we don't fail to notice, oh, bodies are like this. Sometimes they experience pleasure. Sometimes they experience pain. It's not because something's wrong. Still, we can take care of things like, you know, posture and not putting undue pressure on our bodies. But we can be so hard on ourselves and so hard on our bodies in the face of this simple reality that, wow, sometimes it hurts, sometimes it's painful. And I'd like to share a story. This is one of my favourite and probably most repeated or most commonly shared stories that a, um, a teacher of mine who's an English Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sachito, I first met him in India about 25 years ago. And it was a very interesting meeting because I was on this retreat for, a, I think, about three weeks. And at one point I came into the meditation hall. In the, um, it was either late in the night or early in the morning, somewhere in the small hours. When one's been practicing for an extended period of time, sometimes one does such things. And anyway, there was someone snoring in the meditation hall. And it was like, oh, who's this making a noise in the meditation hall? It should be quiet in the middle of the night. Anyway, the next day I met this wonderful being who was on a pilgrimage walking through India at the time and he gave us this talk and he told us a story which I want to share. So um, it speaks to me and on, on this topic I think very well. He says, so I'm speaking his words which I transcribed from his talk and asked him can I use these? I mean years later, I wasn't teaching then. Um, I said, uh, sorry, he said, Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. And I would sit, pain, I would think, be with the pain. That would do it. Here am I, being with the pain, being with the pain. It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Oh, that's got it. Oh, oh no. Oh, pain. oh, cushion. Maybe one cushion, two cushions, three, four cushions. Maybe angle them to the left, to the right. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. You get the impression. For five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth. Yet I hadn't actually come to that 
accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Pain is bad. Make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into I do not like. So one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours, not moving, and get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, middle way, moderation and all that. Hours go by, two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. <laughs> After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it, <laughs> and came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally, the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, ignorance does get tired. And after a while, has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away. Or, let's open to it and that will send me into a sort of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. And then I began to see the sensation throbbing away. It began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then, because of this choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on. Resistance. Then, with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. And this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way, telling it to be that way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt the sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. And in my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog. I always think of Scooby-Doo. And it turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me in this pain... Me and the dog, me and the pain. And then the whole thing just exploded, very gently. And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognising that the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. 
the business is finished. It's a remarkable story. still find it touches me, even though I've been reading it and sharing it for a long, long time. One of the things, as we reflect on it, we might notice, however, is we think, ah, okay, that's how you do it. And it would be useful to reflect on the words of Ramdas in this context. He said, you can't be with an experience in order to make it go away, because it knows. <laughs> and of course it knows, because it's part of the same system that's being with it, to make it go away. When we're really being with our experience, what tells us that that's so is that it's okay if it stays and it's okay if it goes. We actually start to trust that we can manage this experience. If it's a difficult experience, we can manage it if it continues to be here. If it's a desirable one, we can also manage it if it happens to come to an end. That's what we're learning here. It's one of the fundamental developments or sort of coming to trust our capacity. And it's really important as we, as we travel in this journey that we, we understand also that the way we are towards ourself often is reflected in that way in speaking about how we are towards our body and pain. Just as we need to forgive and actually honour this body even though it, at times we experience pain in it or through it or limitation through it in different ways. So too with ourselves. To understand that all of the things of our life that we might feel sorry about or regret or feel were our limitations, our failings, our mistakes, our mess-ups, all the things we might be hard on ourselves for, if we look carefully into what's been going on in our lives, I think what we'll see is that Everything comes out of our attempt to take care of ourselves and those things that we care about. Nothing that anybody ever did. And I mean anybody. <coughs> of course, we don't know what's going on for anybody. We can only know what's going on for ourselves, ultimately. But if we look, and if I look at myself, what I see is, yeah, all the things I do, everything I do, at some level, is connected with taking care or trying to take care of myself. And of course, even acts of real kindness and generosity, because we understand that kindness and generosity towards others actually helps our own well-being, it also takes care of us. If it didn't, it would be much harder to argue for it. But in that, there's this, this way in which, at the same time as we might see that we're trying to take care of us, sometimes we're actually not very skilled yet in doing that. We're learning. There's a there's a kind of a tragic thing that happens to most of us, I think, sometime about the point where our bodies have done most of their growing and settled into this and, and we start to get referred to as grown ups, as if we finished the process of learning. When we're children it's okay to mess up and learn and figure things out, but once you're an adult you're supposed to be finished with that art. And it's madness because there's no way we are finished with that job. But if we don't give ourselves the space to continue it, then it's really quite painful. We can be so hard on ourselves. And 
the Buddha spoke about the fact that, you know, we don't understand what's going on. We don't see clearly all the time. We haven't been guided, helped and trained and supported to see clearly. And because of that, we act in all kinds of well-intentioned ways that don't always lead to what we were seeking for. There's a, a lovely story that I think speaks to the importance of allowing ourselves to enter life as a sense of a learning journey. And it involves the opportunity that came to a, a, a Zen practitioner, a practitioner of Zen meditation of many years who was very excited to have the opportunity to meet the Grand Master, the senior teacher of the whole tradition. Um, and he was, he was very excited by this and he knew he would only have a few minutes and could ask maybe two, maximum three questions. And it was exciting but also a little bit scary because the Zen Master was known for being pretty tough. So he went along and he, he just made a bow, as the tradition would say, and, and the Zen master is sitting there and she's sitting upright looking like a mountain and not looking particularly friendly. And so he's a little bit, oh, master, master, I'm so happy to meet you. Um, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate, to develop? The master looks at him. Mm. Good judgment, wise discernment. Oh, thank you, thank you, yes, yes. Um, of course, good judgment, wise discernment, yes. How do you cultivate wise judgment, good discernment? How do you do that? Mm. Experience, the Zen master. A little impatience coming in, it seems like. Oh, thank you, yes, of course, experience. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. <laughs> Bad judgment. How do we get experience? How do we learn? We learn in exactly the places we haven't yet learnt. That's the nature of it. That's how life wakes us up. Because we haven't learnt what we need to learn somewhere, we end up in the place where we're given the opportunity to learn it. It's not usually comfortable there. And yet it takes a real authentic compassion and love for ourselves to say, actually, although it's scary and potentially uncomfortable, because this is actually where we wake up. This is where we learn. This is where we grow. I'm willing to go there too. When I was travelling in Asia in my early practice years, I spent some time volunteering at a um, sort of like a, a health clinic for, for street people in Calcutta. It was run by an organisation called Calcutta Rescue and... Uh, I wasn't medically trained, but I was helping, assisting in small ways with people who were also volunteering their doctors, nurses and other such. And I learned something about leprosy, because some of the people we were treating were lepers, that really surprised and shocked me, and actually also really illuminated me. Because I had this idea that leprosy was this horrible disease that makes bits of your body fall off. And maybe that's what most of us think, because that is one of the ways it can impact you. But in fact, leprosy doesn't cause parts of your body to fall off. Leprosy kills the nerve tissue. So you can't feel. And what that means is that, and it's, this is a disease of poor and usually illiterate, uneducated people, if you cut yourself or you burn yourself or you hurt yourself in some way and you don't feel it, it gets infected and starts to rot and you don't actually feel it. And so you lose bits of yourself 
your body. And it's an incredibly poignant thing to reflect on for me still. I think, actually, you know what would make the biggest difference to the life of someone with leprosy? Would be to be able to feel pain. Because what it does is it says, pay attention here. It's really good at it. It says, pay attention here. But mostly we go, it hurts. I don't want to pay attention here. Because it hurts, we need to pay attention here. Whether it hurts in terms of physicality and maybe I need to do something. It's not all like the story with you know, the, the pain in the arm and it just magically seems to dissolve. You know, that's a nice story. But it, that's not how it happens most of the time, not in my experience. Sometimes I maybe need to take care of it too. But the beginning of that is paying attention. We are invited in this practice to contemplate how life is. To look at it, to see clearly. Now again, uh, in the, the Buddha's teaching and his, his wisdom and his compassion, he spoke again and again about the fact that it's not easy. It's not easy. And even his life, if you look, even this remarkable and profoundly wise and compassionate being, there were plenty of challenges for him. If you read what actually was going on. But he spoke about the fact that human beings having a body, we're subject to birth, ageing, sickness and death. It's like all of those things every one of us will encounter and it's not easy. It's not easy. In fact, I used to always, when I heard that, that's the traditional translation of you know, the, the language he used, I used to think, the Buddha's a very, he always does things in a very particular way. He's not random or casual in the way he, and it doesn't make sense to me because sickness happens before you get aging. I was getting sick when I was a kid on occasion. So why would it go birth, aging, sickness, death? And, and some time ago I read another translation which made more sense. It said, birth, you listen to how this one feels, birth, aging, decay, death. Oh, yeah, I get that. That's the kind of sickness that you don't get better from. That's the kind of, okay, this system is no longer quite able to do what it used to be able to do. And for quite different reasons than those that afflict a leper, a leper we might find we lose bits. Or bits just don't work the way they used to work. Some of them have to be removed because they're causing trouble. It's like, wow, okay. And then, of course, we're not here forever death. This is massive, it's profound in its significance for us. And just to see, yeah, all of us, all beings in fact, we share this. One teacher in Thailand who was a teacher of one of my teachers and so I feel I'm kind of like one of my Dharma grandparents or ancestors. He, he, he used to begin his Dharma talks when he'd speak, he would say, so he'd say, dear brothers and sisters, dear sisters and brothers, and birth, ageing, sickness and death. It's like, what a cheery way to begin the conversation. And yet, interestingly, when we bring it up and make it, put it out front, there is something cheerful about it. Because we're not shying away from it. And of course the Buddha went on, that's 
the story of our body in one sense. He also spoke about the human experience, we could say, of the heart, of uh, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. It's like, oh, again, it's like sorrow. We all experience loss or difficult things that we wouldn't have wished to happen. Painful things that are difficult to make room for. And it's not how we wish it to be. We try to avoid it and we can't. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. It's like, oh, it doesn't sound good, does it? And if we printed that on the brochure for meditation courses, come along, you too can experience this. It's like, you know, we'd probably cut through the waiting list pretty quickly, wouldn't we? And yet again, there's something strangely uplifting about just saying, oh yeah, this is part of our human story. It's not the whole of the story, but it's the bit we kind of don't quite acknowledge so fully. He also spoke about what it is to be associated with the disliked, separated from the liked, and to not get what I want. And these are, in a way, for our mind, this is what we struggle with. This is hard for us, to not get what I want. The truth of this is universal. The Buddha spoke of this. The importance that we understand is that we share this together. And as we've mentioned already, because this is shared, it's not that somehow because of the things you did, therefore you ended up with ageing decay and the eventual death that will one day come to us. Or that you have sorrow and pain or grief and lamentation because of the version of life that you got. No, actually every version of life includes that. And so then actually we can start to have a different relationship to that territory. There's something when we open to it without judgment or blame that actually it kind of pierces the heart. There's something poignant. It's a lovely word that, poignant. You know that sense of it's like being pierced and something that's both sweet and painful at the same time. Something tender in our remarkable and beautiful sensitivity. That this organism, this heart, this mind, this body has as its capacity. And in that, what we see is being sensitive as we are. It, it makes sense and nothing other in a way than kindliness and caring towards this condition makes sense. Judging it or rejecting it makes no sense at all. Judging ourselves or rejecting ourselves for experiencing it makes no sense at all. There's a poem by a Palestinian-American woman, Naomi Shihab Nye. She writes of this. She says, it's entitled Kindness. She says, before you know what kindness is, what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. 
The passengers, eating maize and chicken, will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the man in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows. And you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So, when we start to get a sense of the tender territory of our life, and it's important again to not say this is the total territory, but this is the territory we perhaps, many of us have a lot more learning to do. We equally need to understand, to open, to embrace that which is beautiful, delightful and uplifting. And that's another whole realm which is not my focus tonight. But in terms of this, Part of what we've, or one of the areas we've been turning to today, specifically in the afternoon with the loving kindness, the metta practice, that sense of wishing well, when we see that only kindness makes sense, to practice, to develop connecting with that capacity, which we all have. It's deep within us because we care. All of us, we care so deeply, so profoundly, so beautifully, in fact about so many things. None of you would be here, in case you're doubting me, thinking, what's he talking about? I don't care. Actually, none of you would be here if you didn't care. None of you would have stayed here if you didn't care. Why would you do this if you didn't care? It would make no sense at all. But because we do care, it makes complete sense to do this. to practice out of care for and kindness towards ourselves, out of a sense of care for and kindness towards those around us, out of a sense of care for our world and all beings that live in it, to learn to open, to wake up, to free the heart and the mind from the shackles and the bondage of fear, of contraction, of habitual patterns, and limitations to see you know that beautiful line catching the thread of all sorrows until we see the size of the cloth beautiful line from the poem when we actually get that oh my gosh this tenderness of our hearts it weaves us together and so often people express in the small groups and other times actually hearing other people speak from their experience of difficult things or even just ordinary things or funny things or lovely things or whatever. But hearing that, we oh my gosh, we recognize each other's experience 
in our own experience. Even though it might be different, in another way we recognize it's the same. And when we look at that which is difficult and challenging as if it's somehow the product of a failure on our part or a wrongness of the world, it has the effect of disconnecting, of isolating, of creating a sense of separateness, which is the deepest suffering that comes when we feel separate, disconnected, out of touch with life, others and even parts of ourselves. When we open, as we do, and we actually if we do what we're being invited to do here, we can't help but open. Even if we might not even think that's what's happening, it finds its own way. And in that there's a, a way in which that sense of sharedness starts to stand out to us. We start to walk past someone and we realize that actually something fundamental of my life is just as fundamentally true of theirs. And we don't have to know anything about their life to know that. Because we can just feel this is a sensitive, tender human being. And to be a sensitive human being in this world, it's like this. And we know that so well from our own experience. And we can perhaps start to see that our caution, our hesitation with regard to to being open with regard to tenderness and openness is that at some level we're afraid of losing the defining boundaries, the protection against that vulnerability. And yet when we see that that vulnerability and the tenderness and sometimes the pain or the sorrow within it connects us to each other, it actually becomes a precious offering and one which we really wish to receive and to honour. We may fear the softening, the dissolving into, the opening up and the letting go. But in fact, as we explore what it means to do this, in our experience, not in our ideas about it, but in our experience, we see that what is invited, what is revealed is a, is a natural fluidity, a natural adaptability, creativity, transformability within our experience and actually in all that is around us likewise. And that as we become more fluid, we start to discover, as we become more open and fluid, there's a freedom in the midst of all of this to not be bound by the experience, to not be defined by what's happening or even by a reaction to it, but to be able to rest in the space that can receive it, that can see it, that can resonate with, be touched by, and yet not pulled or pushed away from the sense of being here. And there's something very ordinary and yet remarkable in the simple capacity that is here, this wakefulness, this presence, this openness that we're exploring and deepening into. Ultimately what we come to see is that the boundaries, the defenses, the limitations are constructed and in a sense artificial. 
that what we find as we open and continue opening, taking that risk that yes, we'll be touched and yes, it won't always be easy, we discover something that is boundless, that is vast, and that is really the natural condition of the human being. It is the natural expression of our heart and mind and our life that is awake and sensitive, at peace, but at the same time profoundly responsive. And it's not something so different from what we already know in the heart of our hearts. And so we engage in this practice, despite the fact that it's not always fun or easy. And we sometimes can't quite make sense of what the heck is happening. And yet, just and precisely because of that again, to bow to ourselves, to each other. Wow, how amazing. Human beings that are willing to do this. What a blessing. So, let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we find the, the courage to turn towards that which is not easy for us to meet and to open to. May we learn to live in the, the tenderness of our open hearts. May we come to know the heart of kindness that is unbound for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives. <laughs> 